when I whet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn Podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. This is episode 160, and I'm your host, Miguel. In this episode, we're going to listen to a documentary by the name of Architects of Western Enslavement, The Frankfurt School, Cultural Marxism and Political Correctness, Cancel Culture. We're going to listen to this documentary, and it's going to address exactly what's taking place right now the different attempts that the higher-ups, the 1%, the ruling class, the attempts that they have made to take over the whole world, because what they have is not enough, obviously. They want more, and they want to take ours. This is a very deep dive, and I suggest that you kind of keep your hand hovered over the pause button, if this is the subject matter that interests you, because you're going to probably need to hit pause a couple of times. First of all, the audio is not that good. It's an older, it looks like it's from the late 70s, early 80s, this documentary. And it's very dense and very deep. Even if you're well-versed in the subject matter, I just recommend that you kind of go through it slowly and make sure that you have a comprehension of the content of this uh, of this documentary, of this audio. Many times when a person listens to something that could be either a little over their head or a little difficult to understand where you have to commit to listening to it and getting a good understanding of it, Many times when we're faced with that situation, people give up and they'll flip over to a golfing game online or something like that, or some Halo video game. But, you know, when you want to grow and expand and discover what the real truth is, it it takes effort and you're going to meet resistance. And those things that propose the most, oppose the most resistance, give you the greatest gain. That's especially true with this episode. Again, in this... In this documentary, they get very deep into Sigmund Freud psychology because these are the methods that they're employing on us. This really deep psychology merged with political rhetoric, ideology, lies, okay? Where they're telling you, you know, this is a utopian society and such, but it's really a trap for enslavement. It's kind of like, you know, you put a piece of chicken in the trap, the wolf in the forest comes up and sees the chicken, says, oh, that's a piece of chicken I want. He goes in and he's caught, he's ensnared, and he becomes the piece of chicken. He becomes the meal because he didn't see the cage containing the chicken. So so again, you have to take that deeper look inside. Again, that's especially true with this episode. You must remember that the goal of communist socialist theory is to break up the family unit, to control all the media that you consume so that your reality is based upon their paradigm so that you believe the reality that is that they want to download into your consciousness, into your brain, so that you become a useless vessel of the state, not free thinking, not critical thinking, but just following instructions. That's why the Common Core educational system today is not based upon learning, but it's based upon the ability to pass tests, because if you're able to pass tests, then you're going to be a good compliant worker. You're not going to ask questions and you're not going to look around you and see what's happening. As you descend into basically control, 
a state of being controlled by the state where you have no free will. What you're doing basically is exchanging your freedom for a bowl of rice. Gets a little deep, but again, you gotta you gotta keep track on this. So what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna get into these the game plan, the rules that they have set before them to take control. If I'm not mistaken, this actually these rules for radicals. It comes from a book called Rules for Radicals, written by Saul Alinsky, who Hillary Clinton was a big proponent of. She was a real protege of him and his writings, these communist writings. And it's all veiled in, in, in doing the common good and helping people and, you know, bringing people together and everything like that. But all it does is tear people apart. In critical theory, you'll never see anything that actually builds up because all it does is tear down, criticize, cause division, and puts people in a state of confusion where they no longer are able to distinguish rhetoric from reality and their real world. Again, I say it over and over again. Don't just listen to the words, but look at the results and the actions. And we've had like 40, 40 years, almost 50 years of, of this matrix code running on us, this political system and everything like that, and it does nothing for us. I don't want to say that everything is bad. Again, I grew up on welfare assistance, you know, my pop side when I was six and, you know, ghetto Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn, you know, very poor, impoverished tenement flat, you know, you know, with my mom and uh, my brother. And we were brought up on welfare, eating that welfare cheese and shit like that. And I'm immensely grateful for that. Every, every slice of cheese that I got from them. So I'm not biting the hand that feeds me. And yes, we do need to have these support systems in place, but... Why does it, for every dollar that the government doles out, why does it cost $10? So I, I, you take $10 of my tax money, right, that's targeted, let's say, towards welfare, and the families that are targeted to receive this benefit, out of my $10, they get a dollar, and the government keeps nine of it. And that's basically the way the, the game is played, man. They're doing it because this is a, a big business for them. This is a profit deal for them because we're the cattle. And they're the cattle masters, you know. Again, look back to that uh, movie that I uh, covered, Animal Farm. So we're going to get into the rules right now. Rule number one, corrupt the youth. Get them away from religion. Get them interested in sex. Make them superficial. Destroy their ruggedness. And I'm reading this verbatim. Rule number two, you can look it up online. Get control of all means of publicity and the media. Number three. Get people's mind off their government by focusing their attention on athletics, sexy books, and other trivialities like their iPhones and YouTube. Number four, I added the YouTube. <laughs> Number four, div divide the people into hostile groups by constantly harping on controversial matters of no importance, which is which you turn on your TV and go on, in, on, uh, on the internet and that's what you're going to see right now. Go on Instagram and you're going to see all the cities burning down right now. People don't realize they're burning down their own cities. Number five, destroy the people's faith in their natural leaders by holding the latter up to contempt, ridicule, and negative speak. So in other words, whoever your rulers are, regardless of who they are, just harp on them and tear them down and tear them down. Of course, if they're reading from the communist playbook like Joe Biden and them, then, you know, you, you go with that because Biden is selling us out to China. It's pretty obvious, him and his son Hunter, but we ain't even going to go there. Number six, preach true democracy, but seize power as fast and ruthlessly as possible. I'm going to read that again. 
Always preach true democracy, but seize power as fast and as ruthlessly as possible. That's number six. Number seven, by encouraging government extravagance, destroy its credit and produce fear of inflation and rising prices and general discontent. That is what it is. Number eight, foment unnecessary strikes in vital industries. Encourage civil disobedience and foster a latent and soft attitude on the part of government towards such disorders. So in other words, as our cities burn down, just say to yourself, wow, my government doesn't even care. You know, it's, this is some deep psychological stuff because what they're doing, fostering, I, I say it over and over again, they're fostering fear and misinformation and more fear so that when you're in a state of fear, you can't make critical decisions and you can't think logically because, again, you're in a f- fight or flight kind of scenarios, so you just uh, are easily controlled because you're docile and afraid. Number nine, by deceptive argument, cause the breakdown of the old moral virtues, honesty, sobriety, countenance, faith in the Pledge of Word, and ruggedness. In other words, you know, the moral fibers that built this great country, and all great countries that have existed, you know, the backbone of the country is just that honesty, sobriety, you know, faith. And keeping your word, ruggedness. This is this is what a real, true, strong society is built on. Number ten. Cause the registration of all firearms on some pretext, with a view of confiscating them and leaving the population helpless. If you take a look back in history, every time the government, let's say in China, Venezuela, Cuba, and all these countries, when they confiscate all of the firearms. Uh, within a year or so, that country is under dom, uh, you know, communist socialist rule because the people cannot defend themselves, and that's when it gets really ugly. Okay, so that's number ten, and that's something to reflect on. I, you know, I recommend that you go online and and, and Google this, these uh, rules, and you're going to read them. There might be some variation as far as word here or word there, but it's basically, or you might see one that has ten rules and one that has twelve rules, but find it for yourself. And then find it from multiple sources where you could see that it's actually true. You'll just just do your research, man. Do your diligence, and you're gonna come to the conclusion. You're gonna come to your truth, not your truth, the absolute truth, and uh, it's gonna shock the shit out of you. It continues here. It says the first and most important number one healthcare. Control healthcare, and you will control the people. Poverty. Increase the poverty as high as possible. Poor people are easier to control and will not fight back if you're providing everything that they need to live. In other words, basic necessities like food and water and a Band-Aid if they cut their finger. Debt. Increase the debt to an unsustainable level that you may be able to increase taxes and this will produce more poverty. How do you like that? Thank you. Again, this is another list that I'm going that kind of merges in with this one. Again, the gun control. Welfare. Take control of every aspect of their lives. Food, housing, and income. Education. Take control of what people read and listen to. Take control of what children learn in school. Kind of like the purge on YouTube where everybody's getting purged out. And, you know, I notice sometimes my wife will post something up online on Instagram and it'll get that fact check thing, you know, where it says this has to be fact checked. You can't even see it because they're controlling it. Kind of like the conversation, I forget the guy's name, but he's the guy that runs Twitter when he was getting cross examined by Ted Cruz. And he was doing all this doublespeak, so it's, it's all, you know, it's all control mechanisms, you know, in place. 
Education, take control. Okay, numbers, uh, not number seven, but religion. Remove the belief in God from the government and schools. Uh, class warfare. Divide the people into wealthy and poor. This will cause more discontent and will be easy to take taxes from the wealthy people to support the poor. I mean, it's diabolical, man. If you look at it on the surface, it looks like a bunch of words and phrases and rules and stuff like that, but... Look very carefully because that's exactly what we have taking place right now. In this podcast, if I start getting into breaking all of this down, it's going to be hours and hours and nobody wants to hear that. Do your research, man, and find out what's going on. Now, this is definitely going to ruffle some feathers. People that feel that they have a true understanding of everything and know, you know, how a grain of corn is formed within the husk, you know, on a field, you know, not having any understanding the divinity, you know, I'm, I'm Christian and, and Jesus is my anchor. So this is my own personal interpretation, but people have no understanding of that, you know, DNA and RNA and the, the wonder of, of, of God's creation, you know, or, or whatever supreme deity you, you believe in. And even if you don't, I mean, it's indisputable that there's intelligence to life. So again, before we get into this, I'm not here to, this might ruffle people's feathers and such, but I'm going to quote Aristotle, you know, Aristotle. The test of a first-rate intelligence of a man is the ability to hold two opposing ideas simultaneously in the mind without conflict. So what that means is, you're, and when I say man or whatever, you know I mean man and woman. I don't want to get all like politically correct with this shit. And another thing that I find is you're going to have an instance where you'll be listening to a speaker and he'll be putting his uh, his theory out there or his, his teaching or whatever his, his position is. And he, he'll have, let's say... 25 points that he he presents to you. He presents 25 points, talking points, and he goes over them. And of those 25 talking points, you agree with 24 of the points, right, that he said. But there's one point that you don't agree with, the 25th point you don't agree with. And as a matter of fact, you really hate that point, okay? So generally what a lot of people do is they discard all 25 things, even though they agree with 24 of them. And if you do that in life, you're never going to listen to anybody because this the only person that you're going to be in complete agreement is yourself. And even that's hard. So it's important to be able to entertain two opposing thoughts without conflicting it in your brain. There's another reason for that is that, and I can remember a few times that I would have someone ask me, why are you studying about this point? Or what are you studying about that point? Or why are you watching these politicians, uh, politicians on television if you hate them or you don't believe... You believe that they're misleading us all and lying to us and stealing from us. Why do you listen to them? Probably the person that you have to pay most attention to is your enemy to see what he's doing and he's thinking. Because at that point, when you come to a conclusion or you get delve into a subject and drill down, you're going to have a full spectrum view of what it is from both sides. So that if it comes into question, you're going to be able to debate and support your point because you know the opposing point, Right. And oddly enough, there are going to be some instances that where there's going to, you're going to be able to glean some knowledge or something, actually good stuff from somebody that you oppose. You know, it's just the way it is. One and two, if you have a debate or something like that, you're going to be able to explain the person you're debating. You're going to be your opposition. You're going to be able to explain their own point to them because they're going to keep saying, oh, you don't understand. And you don't. Yes, I do understand. And this is... This is exactly what your, you know, what your point is, and I understand it, and here's my point, and this is why I disagree. 
So it's really the sign of highly high intelligence to be able to do that. That's actually a quote from um, Aristotle, and I think Ter Terence McKenna kind of copied that same quote. It's like people, people that don't do that are only looking f to reinforce what they already believe, you know, at the current time. So in that way, you'll never grow. If you're only looking to listen to a speaker to reinforce your own thoughts and ideologies, you're a dummy, okay? Don't, don't. Don't do it in that way. Do it in a way where you're going to learn what the big picture is and all opposing views, man. The 360 view. So as these leaders talk and talk that rhetoric and make all these promises and we care and everything like that, like Joe Biden says he cares for the black and minority community, but in, I forget whatever year that was, in 2007 or whatever, he wrote, no, no. Correction, I think it was nine under Clinton, so it was like 1982 or something like that, or whatever year that was. He wrote the crime bill that for a crack rock that's worth 10 bucks, a brother could do, I don't know, 10 years in prison? In the privatized prison system where they keep people in prison for profit. For a $10 crack rock, he's going to get, let's say, 10 years where another dude, and I'm not going to say a white dude or whatever, just a person, you know, of a little bit of privilege... They'll get caught with, a, with an ounce of powder cocaine and, you know, they, they, they get probation and they get whatever. That crime bill put so many people, especially our minority community, you know, Puerto Ricans, Latinos and blacks and such, into these privatized prisons. It's insanity. And in some of my past episodes, I got into this. I'll, I'll get into it really quick. In, I believe it was the year 1991 or 1992, just before... And some of my, my dates might be off, guys, but this is just, you know, I'm just doing the thumbnail sketch. Right around 91, just before the gangster rap music exploded, about a year before that, there was a big meeting of industry, um, music industry, entertainment industry professionals, and they said, we're building all, they didn't say this part of it, but this is in essence what it was, they were building all of these privatized prisons for profit by whacking HUD and these, you know, whatever. Uh, security companies, and they wanted a guarantee of, let's say, 90% occupancy in these prisons. So they said, in order to do that, we have to get after the black and minority community, the black and Hispanic community, so that we can populate these jails to full capacity. And the way we're going to do that is this new thing called gangster rap. Up, up until this point in time, you had KRS-One and you had uh, the Brand Nubians and you had Tribe Called Quest, and they were coming out with some really positive music, uplifting music, where people were listening and learning, and really, it was uniting everybody, you know, black, white, and everybody, everybody was digging it, and if you listen to the music, it would be about a dude doing his thing, you know, no, no drugs, no violence, or whatever, and then, bam, you had NWA, and you had Ice-T, and you had all of these, you know, I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm in the middle of writing here, but just all of this gangster rap music that encouraged violence and killing and everything like that. And guess what? These privatized prisons got filled up real quick. So you have to look at the actions. You have to look at the results. And you have, to, while they're speaking all of this love and everything like that, and we're going to help the community and we're going to do all this. I grew up like that and I never saw any of that shit. I will say back in the day, like in the 70s and such, 60s and 70s, I think the help was a little bit more legitimate because we didn't have, have all of these um, bombarded with all of this. Because it's a slow process, you know. This this process started way back like in 1910, 
all right, with the Bolshevik Revolution and World War I, Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx. So, uh, very. this is a very dense topic, man, so do your research, man. But I assure you, once you're able to connect the dots on this, on this plan that they have, that they're perpetrating on us, this enslavement plan, once you're able to connect all of these dots, you're going to experience a liberation that you've never had in your life because you're going to have a true understanding because other than that, you're going to be in a state of confusion. You know, the, the young people today, they just want to get, you know, that $200 pair of sneakers, not realizing what they're doing, you know. Instead of buying a $200 pair of sneakers, why don't you buy a book or why don't you invest in something, maybe a silkscreen heat press machine where you can make your own t-shirts and sell them, something like that. But no, give your money up. It cost them $5 to make the sneakers with the child and slave labor in China. It cost them $5, but they're going to sell it to you for $200. So the, so the other $190 will go to Michael Jordan and Nike. That, that's real smart, man. It's real smart. Again, very, very dense, man. So as you listen to this, do not engage your ego. Do not engage your emotions, or don't get into your feelings, as they say. Listen to all of the views and all of the points that are being put on the table. Listen to them, presented. P listen to them, weigh them against one another, do your research, and and, and, and to speak will tr the truth will speak to you, and the dots will connect. Because when you buy into socialism, what you're doing basically is you're exchanging your freedom for a bowl of rice. And eventually that bowl of rice becomes a half a bowl of rice and a quarter bowl of rice and starvation in communism, okay? Communism caused the death of probably close to 200 million people, like 100 million in Russia. And of those 100 million that died as a result of communism in Russia, most of those 100 million deaths took place between, let's say, 1917 through 19, let's say, 40. Like in the very first 20 years or so of of it being implemented. In Mao's China also, probably 50 million people died, if not probably a lot more because they're very secretive with their statistics. Communism, man, is, is definitely the path to enslavement presented as a utopian life. If you go back, let's say 3000 BC, like 5,000 years ago in, in, in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, like one of the first, I think it's the first city of civilization, the city of Ur, you, it's spelled U-R, right, in southern Iraq. You know, back in those times, first, first mankind, they were at war, either for self-defense, protection, or conquest. They were trying to take what wasn't theirs from somebody else. And that is still taking place today. Everybody wants something for free. Everybody wants to take what you have so that they can have more and you can have less. The only difference this time is the ruling class, they don't, they don't want to take like what you have. They want to take what the whole planet has. Okay, the whole planet. This is this is what's going on right now. So it's really time to smell the FEMA camps, man. And this is really what their plan of conquest was, right around World War One. Okay, just before World War One, right around nineteen. I guess so. my dates might be off, but right around nineteen oh five. They started, and Wall Street contributed a lot to this. Do your research and see how Wall Street funded the Bolshevik Revolution. You know, they built factories over there. They sent food over there. They sent them support for World War One, World War Two, and the Bolshevik Revolution, or what they call the Russian Revolution. These Wall Street bankers funded it. Uh, what one guy, Schiff, Peter Schiff, I think his name is, 
and the Warburgs and all of them, they were they were funding all of this because they viewed Russia as a potential slave state, just like we have China now. The people in China, they make a dollar a day and they work pretty much in slavery. And that was their plan for Russia so that the multinational corporations can gain profit from this population that's under control of communism totalitarianism and no, they, the only thing is to work and get a bowl of rice. Around 1905, they came up with this strategy where they said they're going to unite all of the workers of the world because if if you do a demographic study and look at the numbers, workers probably comprise 90%, you know, of the population of the world, workers, and then you have your middle class and then you have your upper class. So they, they thought by uniting, and as they were doing the Russian Revolution in Russia, like the Bolshevik Revolution when it was fomenting in the beginning, they were trying to spread it out, especially Trotsky. They were trying to spread it out all over the world. That's why it ended up in Cuba, Venezuela, and all these different countries, Vietnam. As they were trying to spread this communism, they, they felt that at some point, all of these workers would unite together under the banner of communism, and they would have control of the world because if you, you know, at that point, if you control 90% of the population, you control the world, and they would run the world. They would be in charge of these communists. But it was all bullshit because it was a plan, right? So... World War I comes up, and I think it's 1914, give or take. I think World War I was 1914. Right when World War I hit, and that's basically three years later was the Bolshevik Revolution in uh, uh, 1917. So in 1914, World War I hit, and all of the workers that were supposed, supposedly entertaining this communist plan, uniting with the workers of the world, all that bullshit, when World War I hit, all of these workers, instead of uniting together to fight for communism, they bent, they went back to their countries and fought for their countries. And then when World War I was over, they returned back to their countries, right? I guess they were supposed to go to Russia, all go to Russia, whatever, and unite and make this huge, you know, proletariat heaven, you know, paradise. But they all went back. So at the end of World War I, they had, this is where the Franklin School comes in, what I'm talking about here, the social engineering. They said, listen, man, this plan didn't work, and we have to find another way to do it because people are going to be accountable to their families, to their countries, and to their loved ones, and to what they know, to natural law, to natural order. So we have to find a new way, and, and they did it through these, uh, what it's called critical theory, where they just criticize everything, tear everything down, and, you know, all of the things that I just read. And slowly, but surely, but slowly, but surely, listen to Yuri Bezmanov, you know, the KGB spy who spilled all the beans on this plan. Slowly but surely, you know, they started entering the universities. They took control of all of the media, okay, so that everything that you're listening to is their propaganda so that you don't even know where you're standing. You're just towing the company line and believing everything that's being dictated down to you without thinking. And that second, the first attempt, you know, that whole workers of the world, that didn't work. But the second one, you'll see where they are right now. And it's actually pretty much, they're trying to put the last domino in place. And, and you see people right now protesting in the streets. They're supporting, uh, they're not supporting this. Like, they're getting very upset. And they're trying to do this whole lockdown with the COVID and uh, enslave us all, man. Because all of this COVID is BS. I said it back when. But it's something... To look into and on one last note there's a book called brave new world by august huxley and it gets into this thing called well, no newspeak actually comes from 1984 orwell but um brave new world august huxley who was a relative if i'm not mistaken of sigmund freud families are doing this to us man these top families but 
you know, I spoke enough, almost a half hour here. I'm going to roll out this, uh, this documentary. So first you're going to hear about a half hour documentary on the Frankfurt School critical theory. And then that's about 30 minutes. And then you're going to hear a second documentary called The Bloody History of Communism, which is going to be about an hour and a half. So in all, it's going to run about two hours. Plus my commentary, it's going to be about two and a half hours. So again, thank you for listening and namaste. And as a closing note, the links to these videos are going to be on my webpage, which is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. The Frankfurt School formally opened its doors on June 22, 1924, but it had already held its first seminar on theory in the spring of 1923. There, almost two dozen Marxist scholars gathered for what Weil, the sponsor, called a Marxist study week. One of the participants was Richard Sorgat, later a famous Soviet spy. Another was Georg Lukács. Lukács's writings on culture were the basis for much of the program. Almost half of the participants in this Marxist study week would later be affiliated with the Frankfurt School. For the first time, Americans today are not free to say what they think. If they say something deemed offensive or insensitive or, worst of all, hate speech, they may be in serious trouble. They may be punished for violating the unholy commandments of the 90s, commonly known as political correctness. But is political correctness a new phenomenon? We'll show you tonight that political correctness has been in the making for more than eight decades. And it seems that a deteriorating society is exactly what political correctness strives for. But just what is political correctness? As you're about to see, Political correctness is nothing less than a Marxist ideology. Marxism translated from economic into cultural terms in an effort going back not to the 1960s, but to World War I. Marxist theory had predicted that if war came to Europe, the working class in every European country would rise in revolt. But that theory proved wrong. When the First World War began in 1914, the workers' loyalty to their country proved stronger than their so-called class consciousness. They willingly put on their uniforms, French or German, Austrian or Russian or British, and marched off by the millions to fight each other. In 1917, a Marxist revolution did occur in Russia, but it failed to spread to Western Europe, again contradicting orthodox Marxist theory. At the war's end, Marxist theorists had to confront the question, what had gone wrong? Antonio Gramsci in Italy and Georg Lukács in Hungary believed they had the answer. Gramsci and Lukács argued that Western culture had blinded the working class to its true Marxist class interests. Before a Marxist revolution could take place, Western culture had to be destroyed. In 1919, Lukács, who was considered the most brilliant Marxist theorist since Marx himself, asked, who will save us from Western civilization? That same year, 1919, Lukács became deputy commissar for culture in the Bolshevik Belakun government in Hungary, where he launched a program of cultural terrorism. As part of that program, Lukács introduced a radical sex education program into the Hungarian schools. Political correctness, as we know it, was already beginning to take form. He tried to actually undermine the unity of the family and that was one of the reasons that he tried to introduce sex education. Laszlo Pastor 
a leader in the Hungarian resistance against the communist takeover of Hungary after World War II, explains why children were targeted. It's always much tougher to convert an adult, you know, to do something what he was taught not to do. The program left great residual effects on Hungary. The only thing what we were permitted to accept as far as culture is concerned, what they were teaching, that was it. Free thinking was a very big sin. The Belakun government lasted only a few months, in part because the Hungarian working class was outraged by Georg Lukács' assault on traditional Western culture. But meanwhile, in Germany, a new attempt to create a Marxist critique of Western culture was taking shape. There, the wealthy young son of a millionaire grain trader, Felix Weil, wanted to establish a public policy institute, a think tank, to serve as a home for advanced Marxist thought. Modeled on the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow, Weil's think tank was originally to be named the Institute for Marxism. Martin Jay, chairman of the history department at Berkeley, an author of a history of the Frankfurt School, explains why the name was changed to the Institute for Sozialforschung, the Institute for Social Research. I think they were very interested in trying to avoid being overly labeled. Uh, so it's a fairly bland name, the Institute of Social Research. The Institute was affiliated with Frankfurt University in Frankfurt, Germany, and in time became known simply as the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School formally opened its doors on June 22, 1924, but it had already held its first seminar on theory in the spring of 1923. There, almost two dozen Marxist scholars gathered for what Weil, the sponsor, called a Marxist study week. One of the participants was Richard Sorge, later a famous Soviet spy. Another was Georg Lukács. Lukács's writings on culture were the basis for much of the program. Almost half of the participants in this Marxist study week would later be affiliated with the Frankfurt School. Following Lukács's lead, the Frankfurt School would be the vehicle that translated Marxism from economic into cultural terms, giving us what we now know as political correctness. The Frankfurt School's first director was an Austrian Marxist economist, Karl Greenberg. Greenberg's principal effort was to firmly establish the Institute's Marxist nature. In his inaugural address, which opened the Institute's new building in Frankfurt, Greenberg said, It has been our intention here from the outset to maintain uniformity in the way we look at problems and go about solving them. I too am one of the opponents of the economic, social and legal order which has been handed down to us from history and I too am one of the supporters of Marxism. In the new research institute Marxism will from now on have a home. Under Karl Greenberg the Frankfurt School worked mostly on economic questions and the labor movement, conventional Marxist subjects. But in 1930, Greenberg was replaced as director by a young Marxist intellectual with very different ideas, Max Horkheimer. Horkheimer quickly began to use the Institute to develop a new Marxism, very different from the Marxism of the Soviet Union. First, recognizing the economic success of capitalism, Horkheimer announced that revolution was unlikely to come from the working class. The Frankfurt School would have to find a substitute. Well, this was the great question. The, the great question is, is there a surrogate for the working class? 
The Frankfurt School would not find an answer to this question until the 1960s. But meanwhile, Horkheimer moved to revive Lukacs's work by making the culture, not the economy, the central focus of the Frankfurt School's work. As Martin J. writes in his History of the Frankfurt School, The Dialectical Imagination, if it can be said that in the early years of its history, the Institute concerned itself primarily with an analysis of bourgeois society's socio-economic substructure, in the years after 1930, its prime interest lay in its cultural superstructure. Indeed, the traditional Marxist formula regarding the relationship between the two was called into question. The key to the Frankfurt School's work on culture was the crossing of Marx with Freud. Just as classical economic Marxism argued that under capitalism the working class was oppressed, so the Frankfurt School used Freud to argue that under Western culture everyone lived in a constant state of psychological repression. So there were radical Freudians during this period who had hopes of using psychoanalysis to uh, end what Reich had called sexual alienation, uh, which they saw as, as significant as economic alienation. The solution, according to the Frankfurt School, was not just a political revolution to overthrow capitalism, but a social and cultural revolution as well. To further the Institute's work on cultural issues, Horkheimer brought in some new blood. included a sometime music critic, Theodore Adorno. Martin Jay sees this edition as critical. Well, Adorno is perhaps the most uh, fecund and uh, I think um, uh, brilliant of all the members of the Frankfurt School. Another new member was Eric Frome. Frome, a practicing psychoanalyst, was noted for his radical Marxist social psychology. He pioneered the concept of sexual liberation and gender politics. According to Martin Jay, in Frome's view, masculinity and femininity were not reflections of essential sexual differences. They were derived instead from differences in life functions, which were in part socially determined. Another piece of political correctness was falling into place. In 1932, Herbert Marcuse became a member of the Institute for Social Research. Marcuse would ultimately become the most important member of the Frankfurt School, for the development of political correctness. In the 1950s and 60s, Marcuse would complete the translation of Marxism into cultural terms that sums it up. Uh, in which Marcuse in the United States represented the most radical uh, inclinations of the school, uh, in a sense continuing the work they had done in the 1920s and uh, into the 30s, uh, a work that was um, inspired by Marxist Hegelian philosophy, were interested in uh, the crisis both of capitalism and liberal democracy, trying to find uh, alternatives to the working class. As we've seen, the Frankfurt School, Marxist in origin, wanted to create a cultural revolution against Western society. And in the 1930s, they took their important first step. In the 1930s, the work of Horkheimer, Adorno, Frome, and Marcuse issued in its first tangible product, critical theory. The term critical theory is something of a play on words one is tempted to ask, what is the theory? The answer is, the theory is to criticize. Through unremitting, destructive criticism of every institution of Western society, they hope to bring that society down. Critical theory is the basis for gay studies, black studies, women's studies, and various other studies departments, 
found on American university campuses today. These departments are the home base of political correctness. David Horowitz was present at the birth of campus political correctness. Well, I was, I was a radical in the 60s. I was a Marxist. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my buddies were people like Tom Hayden. Um, I edited the largest magazine of the left at the time, Ramparts. But the Frankfurt School was important in Marxism because they no longer believed really in the future. They only believed in, in destroying uh, capitalism and destroying, uh, you know, bourgeois democracy is what we would have called it. And if you look at today's campuses, that, that kind of nihilism is really the dominant theme. That is, attack America. The Frankfurt School was careful never to define what critical theory was for, only what it was against. Again, Martin Jay, the Frankfurt School's semi-official historian. The critical theory itself always felt reluctant uh, about being uh, put in the straitjacket of uh, systemization and uh, defied its reduction to a simple definition. Critical theory actually attempted to politicize logic itself. Horkheimer wrote, logic is not independent of content. That means an argument is logical if it helps destroy Western culture, illogical if it supports it. Such twisted thought lies at the heart of the political correctness now inculcated into American university students. When there's uh, you know, 1% of the campus is conservative and the other 9% uh, and the other 9% of the people who care are incredibly liberal, you're going to get uh, you know, you know, something approaching a socialist state. But how did the work of a small group of German Marxist intellectuals come to America? In 1933, when the Nazis came to power in Germany, the Institute for Social Research fled. It fled to New York City, where it was re-established that same year with help from the president of Columbia University. Once in America, the Frankfurt School gradually shifted the focus of its work from destroying German society and culture to attacking the society and culture of its new place of refuge. Not only did they apply critical theory to American society, they added some new elements. One was the Institute's so-called Studies and Prejudice, which culminated in 1950 in Theodore Adorno's immensely influential book, The Authoritarian Personality. In it, Adorno argued that the American people possessed many fascist traits, and that anyone who supported traditional American culture was psychologically unbalanced. It is no accident that today, the politically correct are quick to label their opponents fascists and suggest that they need psychological treatment in the form of sensitivity training. The Frankfurt School even integrated political correctness most fashionable cause, environmentalism, into their cultural Marxism by way of Horkheimer and Adorno's book, Dialectic of Enlightenment. Well, they were very interested in what uh, was called the domination of nature. Uh, dialectic of enlightenment in particular moved the emphasis away from economic domination to the species domination of the natural world, including, we might say, internal nature through uh, psychoanalytic understanding of repression. So they were very keen on recognizing that we needed to have uh, a more nurturant uh, and a more, uh, let's say, a balanced relationship between humankind and the natural world. After World War II, Horkheimer and Adorno returned to Germany, where the Institute was re-established at Frankfurt University. But not all the old members of the Institute returned. Fatefully, 
Herbert Marcuse remained in America, eventually becoming a professor at Brandeis and University of California, San Diego. Marcuse labored to finish the intellectual work begun by Horkheimer, Adorno, and Fromm in the 1930s. Marcuse, on the other, side, on the other hand, remained in the United States and um, during the 50s and 60s developed some of their earlier ideas, emerging uh, Freud and Marx, interested in aesthetics, interested in cultural, uh, uh, let's say, tendencies towards what he would call negation, uh, which were usable in a, a campaign to call into question the uh, what uh, Antonio Gramsci would have called hegemony of uh, uh, capitalist uh, bourgeois culture. And Marcuse became, uh, of course, the so-called guru of the new left. It was Marcuse who finally answered the question posed by Horkheimer in the early 30s. Who could substitute for the working class as an agent of revolution? So you had to find some new constituency, uh, whether it was students or blacks or women or gays or whatever it was. And, and Marcuse had a fluid Marxism that fit into this. Martin Jake confirms the role of the Frankfurt School in creating the victim groups that constitute the politically correct coalition. Uh, but the working class wouldn't play the hegemonic role that traditional Marxism had expected from it. And so uh, students, uh, blacks, um, other minority groups, women, uh, and so forth were, uh, they hoped at least, uh, able to come together. Of critical importance for the injection of the Frankfurt School's work into the student rebellion of the 1960s was Marcuse's revival of Fromm's notion of sexual liberation. Marcuse, however, was the main conduit of ideas. But Marcuse had written one important work in the 1950s called Eros and Civilization, a work which attempted to rub Freud against the grain and come out with a radical, even utopian reading of psychoanalysis. And that, combined with Norman O. Brown's Life Against Death, had uh, a great impact on the counterculture and on uh, emphasizing a libidinal element. Marcuse's Eros and Civilization condemned all restrictions on sexual behavior, calling instead for polymorphous perversity. Instead, it argues that at certain early developmental levels of the human uh, psyche, uh, there was a potential for sexual expression, sexual pleasure, which had not yet been organized into the restricted uh, notions of uh, heterosexual uh, sexuality. And that these had some sort of capacity to be uh, reinvigorated. Polymorphous perversity helped open the door to aspects of political correctness, such as gay liberation. This is, this is his idea of what uh, uh, human society, a uh, good human society should be based on, was a, a certain kind of polymorphous perversity and narcissism, which uh, by liberating um, uh, non-procreative eros, was his term, uh, we, we would uh, find great enlightenment and great happiness. This was the, supposed to be the key to utopia. David Horowitz ties eros and civilization, ties eros and civilization directly into the 60s rebellion he was part of. Marxism is a, a bankrupt creed and was bankrupt in, in by the 50s or earlier. People understood it didn't it didn't work. There was no working class that was going to make a revolution. Capitalism. People were happy with capitalism, basically because it makes you know, it's spread more money to more people than any other system in history. So they tried to find other uh, sources of revolutionary. Uh, energy, and one was the idea of sexual repression. Well, the 60s. I mean, it was a way of 
People always think up complicated theories to, you know, do what they want to do. People wanted to do a lot in the 60s, so Herbert Marcuse, you know, gave them the intellectual justification for having a lot of sex with a lot of people uh, a lot of the time. That's what Eros and Civilization, that's the title of his famous book on it, is about. Marcuse is also the source of one of political correctness's most notable characteristics. It's total intolerance for any viewpoint but its own. Marcuse argued that our free American society was actually a deception, that its true tolerance is somehow repressive, while he argued for something called liberating tolerance. And what he meant by that was liberating toleration or liberating tolerance meant intolerance from ideas and movements from the right and tolerance for any ideas from the left. Uh, it's a, you know, a recipe for a repression. Even Martin Jay, a great admirer of the Frankfurt School, admits the totalitarian aspect of Marcuse. Perhaps his most significant essay in terms of impact, the one we haven't even mentioned, an essay on repressive tolerance, uh, written in the late 60s, which argued that uh, because the um, tolerance of different beliefs produced no action at all, because every belief seemed to be equal to uh, all others, and uh, racist and uh, neo-fascist and militarist beliefs were given equal weight to those that were pacifist and emancipatory. Uh, this led ultimately to the uh, problems of uh, political correctness and incorrectness uh, in the 1980s. Uh, that is, if you had a strong notion of who was politically correct, you could then be intolerant of those who weren't. And sometimes this can be used as a license by people on the left to deny uh, free speech to people they disagree with. Through these works, Marcuse became the main agent of transmission of the Frankfurt School's ideas. Marcuse was a tremendously important uh, influence on the thinking of uh, young people in those days. He was one of the, the uh, spiritual fathers of the movement. And through Marcuse, the new left found the rest of the Frankfurt School. And then in the 1960s, they were rediscovered by students uh, who uh, looked back at the work they'd done and rediscovered a source of a non-traditional, non-communist Marxism, which they found as an inspiration for the uh, student movement in the 1960s. Jay pays Marcuse the uh, ultimate compliment as a revolutionary. He became a kind of celebrity. I mean, in Paris, there were banners that said Marx, Mao, and Marcuse. So he was, uh, you know, luckily because of the alliteration up there with a couple of uh, pretty heavy hitters. And the consequences of the Frankfurt School's work now engulf us all. Martin Jay pays them due credit. Well, it's fascinating. If you compare them with other figures from the so-called Western Marxist tradition, they are perhaps more alive than virtually anybody else. Roger Kimball, although coming from the opposite political perspective from Martin Jay, agrees. The institution of um, the ideas of radical multiculturalism in the academy and uh, what you might call its enforcement wing, namely the ideology of political correctness, uh, testify to the uh, um, vitality uh, of some of those ideas, some of the ideas of the Frankfurt School. We asked former New Left leader David Horowitz what the members of the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, might think if they could come back and visit one of America's politically correct campuses today. Well, I, I'm sure they would be thrilled because they would be, you know, gods. 
The 20th century was the bloodiest in history. 250 million people died in wars, mass slaughter and political murders. The ideology known as communism bears the greatest responsibility for this terrible savagery. This is an ideology that promises so-called equality and justice, but which brings with it only bloodshed, death and fear. In this film, we shall be examining the bloody century of communism and seeing the terrible misery this ideology inflicted on humanity. It will be impossible for the world to avoid similar tragedies in the future unless it learns from the past. It was the middle of the 19th century. Two German philosophers living in England were trying to formulate an ideology that would rock the world. The first time they revealed their ideas was in the Communist Manifesto, which had been published some time before. One of these two philosophers was Karl Heinrich Marx, the other Friedrich Engels. These two believed in a philosophy known as materialism. Which claims that nothing exists apart from matter. Actually, materialism was an ancient dogma which had been put forward by the Greek thinker Democritus. During the French Revolution, however, a number of European thinkers took materialism back off the shelf, dusted it off, and began to propagate it again. Their aim was to do away with religious beliefs, and materialism was the only philosophy they could put up against religion. While supporting materialism on the one hand, Marx and Engels turned to a method known as dialectics, which claimed that conflict was the basic law of nature. For that reason, their theories came to be called dialectical materialism. Dialectics was a hypothesis maintaining that all development in the universe comes about as a result of conflict. The two philosophers attempted to interpret the history of the world in terms of dialectical materialism. Marx wrote books on history and economics attempting to make these conform to that dogma, and Engels did the same for science and philosophy. Furthermore, Marx tried to see into the future. In his view, the industrialized nations of Europe would shortly undergo bloody revolutions as a result of the dialectical principle of conflict. The working class, oppressed by the capitalists, would rise up and seize power after which a communist system would be established. The concepts of religion, morality and the family would have no place in this communist society. Marx and Engels were faced with a major difficulty, however. They viewed human history through the lens of dialectical materialism, even if they had to distort that history in the process. But what about natural history? How had living things come into existence? There simply had to be a materialistic answer to that important question. That answer was provided by another ideologue 
again living in England at the time. As the Royal Navy vessel, the Beagle, crossed the Atlantic Ocean on its voyage of discovery, it carried a young researcher on board. Charles Robert Darwin. After the long voyage on that ship, he returned to London in 1836. He spent the rest of his life trying to formulate a theory to explain how living things came into being. Darwin unveiled his theory in The Origin of Species, published in 1859. In it, he maintained that living things came into being in just the same way that materialist philosophy claimed. In other words, by a series of coincidences. What is more, he proposed that these coincidences work by means of conflict, as dialectic. In short, Darwin adopted nature to dialectical materialism. Darwin's theory had no scientific foundation. That is why prominent scientists of the time refused to take him seriously. Apart from two people, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Just one month after the publication of The Origin of Species on December 12, 1859, Engels began a letter to Marx with the words, Darwin, whom I am just now reading, is splendid. A letter from Marx to Engels shared the same excitement. These last few weeks I have read all sorts of things, among others, Darwin's book of natural selection. This is the book which contains the basis in natural history for our view. The relationship between Darwinism and Marxism grew even stronger. Marxists adopted the theory of evolution as their own scientific foundation. These duly spread under the influence of Darwinism. The books of Marx and Darwin appeared together in communist posters of the time. The Franco-Prussian War of 1871 allowed for the first experiment in the revolution Marx had dreamed of. France was defeated and the imperial administration overthrown, leaving a power vacuum. The Marxists seized their opportunity. Together with other small socialist groups, they provoked an uprising in the capital, Paris, and established a commune, an administration based on communist principles. Under the new regime, Paris turned into a city of terror. Churches and government buildings were torn apart. Men of religion were shot by the communards. The streets were filled with barricades. Thank you.
The commune was finally suppressed by government troops that entered Paris after lengthy fighting. The first experiment in communism had left 18,000 dead behind it. Yet, how was it that Karl Marx's theories were able to spread so quickly? The answer to that question was provided by the famous German scientist Rudolf Virchow. At a congress of naturalists, Virchow took the floor to warn those biologists who supported Darwinism. Be careful of this theory, for this theory is very nearly related to the theory that caused so much dread in our neighboring country. Virchow was right. Darwin's theory of evolution was of great importance in the spread of Marxism among Western intellectuals. The theory portrayed human beings as a species of animal, claimed that they would develop by means of conflict, and most important of all, denied the idea of creation. These three great errors formed the basis of Marxism. The first of the communist revolutions built on that foundation was to take place in Russia. At the beginning of the 20th century, Russia was ruled by the Tsarist regime. However, revolutionary communist ideas were beginning to spread among an increasing number of workers. Part of the military apparatus had also come under the ideology's influence. The leader of the communist movement in Russia was Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. The communist movement led by Lenin was known as the Bolsheviks. These believed that bloody revolution would be necessary for them to seize power. Despite the fact that they had been illegally organizing for years, they had been unable to achieve their aim. The opportunity they were looking for came in 1914 with the outbreak of the First World War. That war was the bloodiest conflict that mankind had ever known. One of the countries involved in that war, which cost the lives of 10 million people, was Russia. The Russians suffered defeat after defeat in the first three years of fighting and lost 2 million dead. The suffering inflicted by the war dragged Russia towards revolution. In February 1917, army units in the capital, Petrograd, 
rebelled and took over the city. Tsar Nicholas II, who was at the front encouraging his troops, set out for the city. His train was stopped by revolutionary troops, however, and the Tsar was arrested. All symbols of the Tsarist regime were destroyed by revolutionary soldiers. Supporters of the revolution rejoiced in the streets. Most people hoped that the end of the Tsarist regime would bring happier times for Russia. But they were wrong. The Bolshevik contribution to the February 1917 revolution was actually quite minimal. They were poorly represented in the post-revolutionary parliament that was set up. The government passed into the hands of the pro-Western Kerensky, a Democrat. Lenin, then in exile, ordered his men to give the new government absolutely no support. He continued to organize the Bolsheviks for his own revolution. And in October 1917, he struck. Lenin's armed militants attacked the Winter Palace, the center of government. They killed those guards who resisted and carried out one of the easiest coups in history. Soviet propaganda films made years after the event would portray the coup as a huge popular uprising started by Lenin's fiery speeches. The fact was, though, that the number of people who attacked the palace was less than 100, and only five people died. Lenin started with a silent coup. Yet things were not to remain so. The Bolsheviks attacked those army units still loyal to the Tsar. A terrible civil war began that would last for three long years. The Bolsheviks established the Red Army to prosecute that war. Lenin's right-hand man, Leon Trotsky, was placed at its head. Red Army units and the secret police agency set up by Lenin, known as the Cheka, had no compunction about using the most ruthless methods to deal with monarchists and other anti-communist groups. Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, and five children were executed by order of Lenin.
Those cities which refused to support the Bolshevik regime were ruined. In telegrams to his militants, Lenin ordered that all those who opposed the communist regime should be shot. The Bolsheviks arrested tens of thousands of people for the crime of opposing the regime. Most of these were tortured and executed en masse. The famous Russian writer Maxim Gorky described examples of Bolshevik savagery. In Tambov province, communists were nailed with railway spikes by their left hand and left foot to trees a meter above the soil, and they watched the torments of these deliberately, oddly crucified people. They would open a prisoner's belly, take out the small intestine, and nailing it to a tree or telegraph pole, they drove the man around the tree with blows, watching the intestine unwinding through the wound. Stripping a captured officer naked, they tore strips of skin from his shoulders in the form of shoulder straps. A terrible fear fell over Russia, but the communist savagery had only just begun. When the Bolsheviks came to power, most of the population of Russia lived in the villages, enjoying a pretty miserable standard of living. Most peasants were only just able to feed their families with what they produced. The freezing Russian winters made productive agriculture an impossibility. A decision taken by Lenin in 1918 inflicted an even worse disaster on millions of peasants, who were already living in poverty. Private property was forbidden, and the peasants' goods were to be confiscated by the state. Lenin carried out that policy by means of another right-hand man, Felix Zerzinski, the head of the Cheka, well known for his ruthlessness. Cheka officers descended on villages all over Russia and began rounding up peasants' crops and livestock at gunpoint. A quota to be handed over by every peasant and given to the Bolsheviks was drawn up. In order to meet that quota, most of them had to give up all that they possessed. Peasants who protested were silenced by the most savage means. On 14 February 1922, one inspector who visited the Omsk region wrote, Abuses of position by the requisitioning detachments, frankly speaking, have now reached unbelievable levels. Systematically, the peasants who are arrested are all locked up in big, unheated barns. They are then whipped and threatened with execution. Those who have not filled the whole of their quota are bound and forced to run naked all along the main street of the village and then locked up in another unheated hangar. Lenin was enraged when he realized that the quota set for the villages would not be met. In 1920, 
he inflicted a fearful punishment on some regions that had resisted the requisitions. Not only would these peasants' crops be seized, but also all the seeds they possessed. Confiscating the seeds meant that the peasants would be unable to produce a new crop. In other words, they would have nothing to eat. Then the famine began. Twenty-nine million people within the borders of Russia battled with starvation. In 1921 and 1922, five million starved agonizingly to death. Lenin watched what was happening with enormous pleasure. In his view, the famine was most useful. He calculated that it would help to destroy people's belief in God and religion and make them bow their heads to communism. In the black book of communism, that sent shockwaves around the world, that devilish idea of Lenin's is discussed thus. As one of his friends later recalled, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov had the courage to come out and say openly that famine would have numerous positive results. Famine, he explained, would bring about the next stage more rapidly and usher in socialism, the stage that necessarily followed capitalism. Famine would also destroy faith, not only in the Tsar, but in God, too. This is what Lenin wrote to the members of the Politburo on March 19, 1922. The present moment favors us. With the help of all those starving people who are starting to eat each other, who are dying by the millions, and whose bodies litter the roadside all over the country, it is now and only now that we can and therefore must confiscate all church property with all the ruthless energy we can muster. Our only hope is the despair engendered in the masses by the famine, which will cause them to look at us in a favorable light, or, at the very least, with indifference. These communications in the Soviet archives have revealed that Lenin deliberately brought about that dreadful famine which cost five million lives. That is the same conclusion arrived at by the historian Richard Pipes, who spent years researching the archives in his book, The Unknown Lenin. In his view, for humankind at large, Lenin had nothing but scorn. Individual human beings held for Lenin almost no interest, and he treated the working class much as a metal worker treated iron ore. The reason why Lenin and the other Bolsheviks were so utterly ruthless was the dialectical materialist philosophy they so believed in. This philosophy regarded human beings as a kind of animal, 
and maintained that violence and conflict were necessary for the development of mankind. Not only did Lenin regard human beings as a species of animal, he also employed animal methods to train them. In October 1919, he paid a personal visit to the Russian scientists Ivan Pavlov, famous for his conditioned reflex experiments on animal. Lenin wanted to impose these conditioned reflex methods on the whole of Russian society. Pavlov was astounded. I want the masses of Russia to follow a communistic pattern of thinking and reacting, Lenin explained. Pavlov was astounded. It seemed that Lenin wanted him to do for humans what he had already done for dogs. Do you mean that you would like to standardize the population of Russia? Make them all behave in the same way, he asked? Exactly, replied Lenin. Man can be corrected. Man can be made what we want him to be. The so-called scientific basis for that philosophy that regarded human beings as a species of animal was Darwin's theory of evolution. The theory of evolution was the most important ideological inspiration behind the communist movement in Russia. Darwin's The Origin of Species was translated into Russian at the end of the 19th century and was responsible for thousands of young Russians turning to atheism and communism. Russian communism was so tied to Darwinism that Georgi Valentinovich Plekhanov, widely regarded as the founder of the movement, clearly stated that he regarded Marxism as Darwinism in its application to social science. Plekhanov's student, Lenin, indeed applied Darwinism to society and mercilessly slaughtered whole societies he regarded as herds of animals. The truth is that human beings are not a species of animal, but are honorable beings created by God in possession of a soul. The reason for their existence on earth is not, as communists and Darwinists would assert, conflict, war and bloodshed, but for them to display a morality that is pleasing to God. Only when man has understood this concept, in other words, only when he lives by true religion, will he find peace and happiness. The end of Lenin, who denied that fact, is a terrible warning. From 1922 on, an increasingly serious sickness slowly began to paralyze him. He spent most of 1923 in a wheelchair, suffering from terrible headaches. In March 1923, he had a stroke and was thenceforth unable to speak normally. In the final months of his life, those who saw Lenin were terrified. His face had taken on a peculiar expression, and he was half mad. The final photograph taken of him shortly before his death was utterly ghastly.
God speaks of the fate of such cruel people in the Quran. Then the final fate of those who did evil will be the worst because they denied God's signs and mocked at them. Lenin died on January 21, 1924. The Bolsheviks organized a huge funeral ceremony for Lenin. Leaders of the Communist Party decided to have his body, which had a tremendous importance for them, embalmed. Among those bearing Lenin's coffin was the next dictator of Soviet Russia, Joseph Stalin. Stalin would rule Soviet Russia for nearly 30 years and establish a regime of such bloodshed and terror that would even surpass that of Lenin. All the historical facts we have so far considered have an important moral for mankind. False ideas can lead to disasters for people and societies. Communism is one such false idea, and it inflicted dreadful suffering on the world during the 20th century. One of the fundamental errors of communism is that it believes conflict to be an unchanging law of nature. The so-called scientific justification for this view is found in the theory of evolution, which says that the differences between people necessarily lead to war, fighting, and conflict. According to this view, called dialectics, every class, every nation, and every society is obliged to fight every other one, and this is a law of nature. That view stamped its mark all over the 20th century, and is the common inspiration behind both the communist savagery we have seen in this film, and also behind that of fascism, which appears to be the complete opposite of communism. It is only possible for mankind to escape this cycle of violence by coming to know the purpose behind his existence. Human beings are not a species of animal that emerge by chance and live only to fight, as Darwinists, communists and fascists believe. Human beings are noble beings, created by God and possessing his soul. And the purpose of man is to learn and to live by that pleasing morality that God has taught him. In the next section, we shall continue to examine the disasters that communist ideology, which rejects that truth, has inflicted on humanity. The Bloody History of Communism, Part 2 Stalin's regime of fear, death camps, and secret murders, the Soviet-Russian genocide of Muslims, Stalin's scientists killed for refusing to accept the theory of evolution. Do not miss the bloody history of communism, part two. In the first part of this film, we examined the birth and development of communist ideology. As we have seen, no matter how much they promised they would bring peace and justice to the world, Marx and Engels' theory actually brought only blood and death. 
Taking Darwin's theory of evolution as its so-called scientific basis, communist ideology spread rapidly, witnessing its first revolution in Russia. After taking power, Lenin, who led the revolution, set up a dictatorship and spread terror over the length and breadth of Russia. Today we know that Lenin had not the slightest feeling of compassion for his enemies, and that he had tens of thousands of opponents of the regime tortured to death or shot. Furthermore, we also know that the famine caused by his mistaken policies led to the deaths of five million innocent people. These facts, confirmed by the archives, reveal the bloody history of communism to all. The bloodiest pages of that bloody history, however, were written by another dictator, a man who left even Lenin in the shade. The dictator was Stalin, one of the worst murderers in history. In this part of the film, we shall be seeing the murders committed by Stalin's regime, together with the dimensions of the disasters that Darwinism has visited on the world. Stalin came to power on the death of Lenin and ruled the Soviet Union by fear and torture for nearly the next 30 years. During that time, he was responsible for some 40 million deaths. Stalin spent his first years in power consolidating his position. He managed to sideline Trotsky, whom he perceived as his major rival, and later had him arrested in exile. In 1929, Stalin implemented a policy known as collectivization. Lenin's experiment in nationalizing the land had remained half-finished, and Russian peasants were still working their own land and selling their own produce in the market. By means of collectivization, Stalin meant to complete Lenin's initiative and to take away all the peasants' lands and produce in the name of the state. Collectivization began with propaganda films. Posing on tractors, Stalin played the role of a leader who would lead Soviet agriculture towards a new dawn. Russian peasants were shown celebrating communism in front of posters of Karl Marx and even dancing with happiness. Yet the truth was very different. In 1930, peasants' produce began to be collected up. The Red Army, one by one, seized the produce from every single field. 
some peasants managed to hide their goods rather than give them up. But Communist Party officials searched every nook and cranny, eventually discovering the hiding places. The officials also seized the peasants' agricultural equipment. The peasants were left with nothing to eat and nothing to work the soil with. Eventually, that catastrophe that Lenin had described as the most useful for communism raised its head again, famine. In Ukraine alone, six million people starved over the next few years. Two million died in Kazakhstan, and one million in northern Caucasus. Children reduced to skin and bone died in agony. There was another ghastly result of the famine inspired by Stalin. Cannibalism. Peasants maddened by hunger began to eat corpses. Then an even worse horror emerged. Some peasants had kidnapped children and eaten them. In front of these two Russian peasants, caught eating human flesh, lay the remains of the children they had snatched. Stalin's regime had turned human beings into savage animals, just as communism had intended. Everyone who opposed Stalin's collectivization policy paid with his life. The principal target were the landowners known as kulaks. Posters denigrating the kulaks were put up everywhere. Tens of thousands of kulaks were detained and shot. In actual fact, the regime branded everyone it saw as opposed to its ideology as kulaks. Large numbers of priests and even members of their congregations who attended church frequently were arrested as kulaks. Some were executed. Others were sent to the labor camps, where a slow, lingering death awaited them. These camps were set up all over Russia and were simply another of Stalin's killing machines. Millions of people regarded as enemies of the state were worked to death in them under the most terrible conditions. Some were put to work laboring on canals in the blazing heat. Others were sent off to break rocks in the freezing cold of Siberia. These people, forced to perform hard labor under the worst possible conditions, soon turned into living skeletons. The great majority never left the camps alive. Joseph Stalin was delighted by all this. In a speech to the Communist Party Congress in 1934, he declared collectivization to be a great success and was warmly applauded by the delegates.
One by one, Stalin's closest associates took the floor and declared what a genius he was. However, a secret vote at the end of the Congress produced an entirely unexpected result. Out of the 1,900 delegates, 300 voted against Stalin. Stalin was stunned. The ballot forms were immediately collected and burned, and the vote declared invalid. It was then announced that Stalin had been unanimously elected Secretary General of the Communist Party. This was not the end of the matter, however. Stalin decided that that treachery would not go unpunished. About 1,000 of the 1,900 delegates were killed within a few months by Stalin's secret police, the NKVD. Stalin had Sergei Kirov, a popular figure who got a larger ovation than Stalin at the Congress, assassinated. He then staged a huge funeral ceremony in his memory. Stalin walked behind the coffin of the man he himself had had murdered. Dozens of people linked to Kirov were disposed of by the NKVD over the next few weeks. Many officials at the most senior levels of the state were killed by order of Stalin during the 1930s. Some were made to undergo show trials, duly found guilty of all charges, and executed. It was necessary to be a loyal sycophant to survive by Stalin's side. Stalin had many able people disposed of out of a fear they might emerge as rivals to him. Some of these were army generals. In 1938 and 39, the most prominent generals in the Soviet army were either killed by the secret police or condemned to death at rigged trials. This unbelievable policy of dissemination on Stalin's part meant the country was defenseless in the face of Nazi aggression. Nazi Germany indeed took advantage of the opportunity thus presented to it and invaded Russia on June 22, 1941. German units advanced hundreds of kilometers within a few weeks, burning and destroying everywhere they passed through. 
Stalin had ignored intelligence reports warning of the likelihood of invasion and accused those commanders who forwarded those communications to him of cowardice. As a result, the Nazi menace that Stalin had regarded as unimportant eventually forced the Soviet Union into the bloodiest war in history. Twenty-five million Soviet citizens would lose their lives in the war between 1941 and 1945. However, the number of Soviet citizens killed by Stalin was even higher than that of the number killed by the Nazis. Between 1937 and 1938 alone, seven million people were detained for political offenses of whom one million were killed. The number of people killed throughout Stalin's regime would eventually reach 40 million. Stalin forced millions of people living under his regime from their homelands by means of internal exile orders issued in a single night. People were crammed into trains and sent off to the dark lands of Siberia. Stalin implemented a particularly cruel policy against the Muslim people living in the Caucasus and the Crimea. In one night, May 18, 1944, 400,000 Muslim Tartars living in the Crimea were rounded up from their towns and villages and sent to labor camps in the most distant corners of the Soviet Union. More than half of these were to die before they ever reached their destinations. Mounted NKVD units sent to Muslim villages slaughtered tens of thousands of Muslim women, children, and the elderly included. Behind them were left thousands of deserted Muslim villages. The traces of some of Stalin's terrible slaughter have come to the light of day in our own time. An NKVD mass grave containing 30,000 bodies was found in the vicinity of the city of Minsk. Some of the bones bore torture marks, and there were bullet holes in most of the skulls. This is what communism brought to the world. While the communist system was killing millions, it also terrorized those whom it left alive. 
communism was literally a regime of terror. It regarded society as a collection of animals that needed to be managed and believed that the only way to do that was by fear and terror. Stalin would be applauded for minutes on end at Communist Party Congresses. The reason for that was because everyone there was terrified of being the first to stop. Stalin had already killed a number of delegates who had failed to demonstrate the necessary enthusiasm. The Communist Party organized frequent rallies to protest against so-called traitors and agents. Anyone could be a target of that campaign. People earlier regarded as exemplary communists could later appear pictured in the columns of Pravda like savage dogs. Everyone was terrified the same thing might happen to them. One favored tool of the reign of terror was mass executions. Thousands of people were publicly executed during Stalin's reign. Communism's reign of terror also dealt a heavy blow to the arts. Pre-communist Russian society had enjoyed a rich culture with great writers, painters and composers. Yet with the advent of communism, ugliness and crudity came to dominate Russian art. The new style was known as socialist realism and locked all Russia within narrow, lifeless constraints. The frozen nature of communist art is a result of the materialist philosophy that constitutes its worldview. Materialist philosophy regards human beings as simply a collection of matter and is a simplistic belief that seeks to reduce everything to the same matter. The application of this to art ended in a complete fiasco as it did in all other spheres. True art is an expression of wonder at the aesthetic and other delights given to man by God. In order for art to develop, it is necessary for that yearning in the soul that comes from creation to be freely expressed. In communist dictatorships, however, that atmosphere of freedom was completely eliminated and art died as people came under constant pressure.
Another blow dealt to society came in the field of science. During Stalin's time, all the scientists in the country were forced to sign oaths of loyalty to dialectical materialism. All scientific research was twisted to agree with materialist dogma. The theory of evolution enjoyed a special place among those dogmas so fiercely defended by Stalin. The Soviet dictator's devotion to the theory went right back to his youth. Stalin had been brought up in a religious household and had been religiously educated in a church school. Yet, just as he was preparing to become a priest, he read a summary of Darwin's Origin of Species and his life suddenly changed. Stalin was easily deceived by the superficial claims of Darwinism and became an atheist. In that state of ignorance, he promptly joined the ranks of the Bolsheviks. The theory of evolution again formed Stalin's most important source of inspiration when he came to power many years later. He was especially keen that the theory should be taught in Soviet schools and declared the intention behind that. There are three things that we do to disabuse the minds of our seminary students. We had to teach them the age of the earth, the geologic origin, and Darwin's teachings. One of the most striking indications of Stalin's dogmatic attachment to the theory of evolution was the Trofim-Lysenko affair. Trofim-Lysenko was a young agricultural expert in the 1930s. He had an interesting idea. He rejected the Mendelian genetics that had been accepted by the scientific community since the early 20th century and supported instead the idea that living things evolve and acquire their characteristics from the environment, originally proposed by Lamarck, a forerunner of Darwin. Stalin was impressed by Lysenko's nonsense and made him president of the Lenin All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences. The years that followed saw the preparation of an agricultural program in the light of Lysenko's idea of evolution and it was forcibly imposed on villages by party officials. Lysenko believed that if seeds to be sown were kept for a long time in cold water, they would evolve according to their chilly environment. In order to test that idea, tons of seeds were kept in cold water and then sown in the steppes of Siberia. They were all ruined, of course. Lysenko's theory dragged Soviet agriculture back by decades. Yet Stalin continued to support Lysenko up until his death. Stalin was so slavishly attached to Lysenko's theory of evolution that he had no hesitation over having those scientists who rejected it killed. One of these was the world-renowned Russian geneticist Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov. 
Vavilov was arrested one night by order of Stalin. He was photographed like a criminal and sent to the labor camps on the grounds of planning to sabotage Soviet agriculture. He died in one of those camps in 1943. Other Russian scientists who believed in Mendelian genetics, such as Muralov, Levit, and Levin, were taken from their homes by members of the secret service in the middle of the night. Most were executed. Stalin, who carried out all this savagery in the name of materialist philosophy and communist ideology, died in 1953. According to a KGB report revealed in 1991, he had had 42 million people killed during his regime. Stalin's cold and arrogant features were a reflection of the dark world of communism itself. God describes the position of such cruel rulers in the Quran. Whenever he holds the upper hand, he goes about the earth corrupting it, destroying people's crops and breeding stock. God does not love corruption. When he is told to have fear for God, he is seized by pride which drives him to wrongdoing. Hell will be enough for him. What an evil resting place. The Red Terror in the Soviet Union continued after the death of Stalin. The new Soviet leaders partially moderated the regime at home, but exported communist savagery abroad. The Hungarian bid for new independence from Moscow that began in 1956 was bloodily suppressed by Red Army tanks. The streets of Budapest were filled with corpses. Another resistance movement in Czechoslovakia in the spring of 1968 was again ruthlessly put down by the Red Army. Then the Red Army invaded Afghanistan in 1979. 
Before the invasion, Afghan communists had staged a revolution in the country with Soviet support and staged mass killings of religious figures there. The Red Army entered the country in order to increase the scale of the slaughter. In the ten years that followed, Soviet units rained death down on the Muslim Afghan people. Afghan villages were ruthlessly bombed by Soviet planes and helicopters and Red Army units inflicted the most barbaric tortures on Muslims. One child, whose family were all killed by Soviet troops, described the communist savagery. They shot my father three times, in his chest, his shoulder and the back of his neck. He fell down dead. My brother and his commander got very angry and fought back. My brother jumped up and grabbed one of their weapons. More Russians came and cut all my brother's fingers off with a bayonet. So, of course, he was helpless. After his fingers had been cut off, they beat him. They shot him in one ear and the bullet came out the other. Five million Afghan civilians fled the savagery, becoming refugees. They sought refuge in neighboring countries such as Pakistan and spent years living in dreadful conditions in makeshift tents. Despite all its military might, however, Soviet Russia failed to overcome the Afghan resistance. The Red Army was forced to leave the country in 1988. 
The Soviet tanks left hundreds of thousands of innocent people dead behind them and once again demonstrated the suffering inflicted on humanity by the ideology known as communism. The historical facts we have so far seen demonstrate that although communism emerged surrounded by fine slogans about justice and equality, it really brought humanity nothing but blood and death. Communist ideologues and dictators such as Marx, Engels, Lenin and Stalin are responsible for the deaths of some 50 million people. Communism literally turned the world into a slaughterhouse. Another ideologue who must share part of that responsibility is Charles Darwin, the man, in other words, who built the basis in natural history for the communist view, as Karl Marx put it. As they staged bloody revolutions, committed ruthless massacres and waged their wars, communists were actually bringing Darwin's theory to life. That was a theory that regarded human beings as a species of animal, that believed that conflict and fighting were an unchanging law of nature, and that, most important of all, encouraged people to deny God, their creator. That is why it will only be possible for mankind to be freed from communism and other bloody ideologies when the Darwinian deception is done away with. When mankind is woken from the spell of Darwinism and materialist philosophy, it will come to know its creator, God and will live by the morality he teaches. In fact, God tells us that we have to follow only His way. This is my path, and it is straight, so follow it. Do not follow other ways, or you will become cut off from His way. That is what He instructs you to do, so that hopefully you may do your duty. The Bloody History of Communism Part 3 The Savagery of Mao's Red China Guerrilla Wars and Communist Terrorist Organizations 1968 and the Communist Revolts in the West Do not miss The Bloody History of Communism Part 3 The Chinese built one of the oldest civilizations in history and lived as a closed society for hundreds of years, stubbornly defending their traditions and culture. In the 19th century, however, China began to open its doors to the outside world. It was the Europeans who came through those doors, particularly the British. The Europeans came to China for commercial reasons and began bringing their own culture to the country. Alongside Western culture, 
Western ideas also arrived. One of these ideas was Darwin's theory of evolution. In 1895, 36 years after its publication, Darwin's *The Origin of Species* was translated into Chinese, and in a short space of time became very popular among the country's intellectuals. Books by other evolutionary theoreticians who supported Darwin's views. Also began to spread through the country. These included Thomas Huxley, considered Darwin's most fervent supporter, and for that reason known as Darwin's bulldog. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, the founder of the theory of eugenics and a prominent racist. The social Darwinist Herbert Spencer, who applied Darwin's theory of evolution to the social sciences. The common feature of these thinkers was their belief that man and all living things were in a constant state of conflict, and that it was this which allowed them to evolve. They denied creation, saying that man had emerged by chance, and portraying him as a species of animal with no divine responsibility. The spread of Darwinist thought through society in this way led to social turmoil, unrest, and conflict in China, just as it did in other countries. Darwinism had such an enormous effect in China in the 20th century that the Harvard University historian James Reeve Pusey wrote a book on that very issue, China and Charles Darwin. According to Pusey's account, Darwinism had a profound effect on Chinese intellectuals, encouraged them to adopt a revolutionary worldview. And provided major ideological support for the development of the communist movement in the country. The man who directed the course of the change that began with Darwinism was Mao Zedong. Mao's political ideology took shape during his student years in the early 1920s. His greatest inspiration was Chiang Dixu, the general secretary of the Communist Party, whom he met in Shanghai. Dixu's principal characteristic was his devotion to Darwinism. He taught Mao both Marxism and Darwinism. 
In his memoirs, written years later, Mao said, Nobody influenced me as much as Chang Dixu. The young Mao quickly came to prominence with the Communist Party, assuming the leadership from the second half of the 1920s. Communist guerrillas led by Mao began a long war against the central government led by Chiang Kai-shek, who had also been influenced by Darwinism. The difference between them was that Mao was a communist and Chiang Kai-shek a fascist. During the Second World War, Mao's and Chiang Kai-shek's forces formed a temporary alliance to fight the Japanese occupation, but began fighting each other again as soon as the war was over. During the conflict between the two Darwinist ideologies, hundreds of thousands of innocent people were killed. The Communist Party flag that was raised over the walls of Beijing represented an even darker time for the people of China, a land that was already in chaos. Mao's rule opened with a huge display. Crowds gathered under the red flags in Tiananmen Square applauded communism. Mao then set out the promises of communism in his frightening, high-pitched voice. Yet most of those who so happily cheered Mao were soon to become the victims of his savagery. In the first years of the communist regime, China's most important supporter was the Soviet Union. Stalin, the bloody dictator in Moscow, regarded Mao as both an ally and a personal friend. Mao now took his place alongside Stalin at the latter's show rallies. The first bloody cooperation between the two communist dictators came just after Mao's revolution, in Korea in 1950. Acting with Chinese and Soviet support, communist North Korea suddenly attacked the occupied South Korea. In 
United Nations forces were sent in to balance the situation. Although the war lasted for three years and cost the lives of more than three million people, the Red Chinese Army directly entered the war on the side of North Korea, while the Soviets provided arms and equipment. Turkish units that fought in the Korean War on the United Nations side lost more than 700 men. After the Korean War, one of the bloodiest conflicts in history, Mao became more involved in internal Chinese affairs. He frequently addressed the people, and millions of Chinese were made to listen to his speeches over loudspeakers. He would promise industrialization and regeneration in those addresses, and say Marxism-Leninism is our only guide. Like his comrade Stalin, Mao wished to implement a ruthless collectivization program. His first action was to confiscate private property. Propaganda films portrayed the happiness this measure would allegedly bring to the Chinese people. Businessmen whose assets had been seized put on false displays of joy. Women also appeared in the same false images of happiness. In reality, however, the regime brought people fear, not joy. Hundreds of thousands of people were tried in the people's court set up in Mao's first years in power and condemned to death for minor crimes. The real disaster, however, would begin with Mao's great leap forward. When Mao came to power, the majority of the population were living in poverty, working in harsh conditions in the rice fields and barely producing enough to feed themselves. But at least they did have enough to eat. The economic program known as the Great Leap Forward, begun by Mao in 1958, led China to complete disaster. The Great Leap Forward began with the slogan of doubling China's industrial and agricultural production. Propaganda posters explained how jealous Western countries would be of Chinese produce.
Mao was portrayed as a leader who would solve all problems by implementing communist ideology in society. To that end, agriculture was first collectivized. Individual production was banned. Villagers were placed in huge communes consisting of thousands of people and forced to engage in collective production under military discipline. Mao would frequently visit the fields and inspect the villagers. At the same time, the Communist Party initiated a campaign aimed at ridding the whole country of harmful animals. Sparrows headed the list of animals thought to damage produce. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese set about exterminating them with catapults, stones and guns. Those bringing in large numbers of dead sparrows were praised as model communists. Yet this odd campaign led to a result that the Communist Party had failed to foresee. The reduction of the sparrow population to zero levels led to a huge rise in the insect population, which the sparrows had formerly fed on. These insects caused much more harm to the country's produce. In 1958, competitions were held between communes. The amount of produce from each commune was measured, and those that produced most were held up as examples. Every commune swore to reach higher quotas. At the following harvest, they announced that they had all exceeded their quotas. But the statistics were false. Communes resorted to deception in order to give the impression that they had produced more. Some even tried to demonstrate that they had filled their quotas by replanting harvested crops in the inspection fields. The communal system led to false statistics, which in turn gave rise to an even greater error. The Communist Party declared that China had a larger stock of rice and grain than it needed, and that in the future it would have to give the priority to other tasks. Tens of millions of peasants were therefore removed from the fields and set to work on the construction of a giant canal. These villagers were portrayed in propaganda films as happy and highly motivated, although in fact, they were soon to suffer a terrible moral and physical collapse. Tens of thousands of people died as a result of industrial accidents in the hazardous conditions they were made to work in. The Communist Party came up with a crude calculation that every worker will build one meter of canal and the project will end in three months. 
yet it actually took more than 10 years to finish the canal. During the Great Leap Forward, factory workers' hours were doubled and machines began to work non-stop. They were not even allowed to stop for maintenance and repairs and so soon began to fall apart. Factories were ruined. At the same time, Mao announced another target for the Great Leap Forward. Steel production was to be doubled within one year. That production was to come not only from heavy industry complexes, but also from small furnaces and villages. As a result of communist ideology, Mao believed that workers' power held a magical force. With that decision, tens of millions of Chinese set out to produce steel by amateur methods. Everything made of iron they could find, from doorknobs to saucepans, was melted down in primitive furnaces in an effort to produce steel. Women cut off their hair and mixed it with the clay in the furnaces. Forests were plundered to provide enough wood for these primitive ovens. People living in the cities, even doctors for instance, joined in the steel production, regarded as a national obligation, outside normal working hours. Yet the whole campaign was totally irrational. The Chinese were simply producing steel, but not making anything useful out of it. What is more, the steel produced was of such poor quality that it served absolutely no purpose. The true dimensions of the catastrophe emerged in 1959. While villagers were working on making steel or building canals, the fields were left empty. Falsified figures showed huge production, although there was actually a great production gap a massive famine started within a few months. The situation was worsened by a severe drought. In 1960, the worst famine in the history of mankind erupted. Forty million people starved to death in just two years. Mao's Great Leap Forward had ended in catastrophe. We have seen throughout this film what a ruthless and cruel system communism truly is. Another fact that needs to be made clear is the unintelligent thinking and behavior of communist regimes. The so-called reconstruction project that Mao called his Great Leap Forward is a clear example of this. The Great Leap Forward shows the clichés of communist ideology bear no relation to the real world and that the great ideas of communist theoreticians such as Marx, Lenin and Mao, supposedly so scientific and clever, are in fact nothing more than empty nonsense. Communists believed in a mistaken ideology and inflicted terrible suffering on mankind by trying to impose that ideology on society. 
The irrational system established by communism is also a living manifestation of God's description of the deniers in the Quran as people who do not use their intellect. The senseless policies of the Communist Party were not the only reason for the famine during the Great Leap Forward. Mao and his supporters also regarded famine as a method of punishment. The regions worse affected by the famine were those cities and villagers regarded as not being sufficiently obedient to the communist regime. The party seized all the produce in such areas, and just as in Stalin's Russia, hid it in warehouses while deliberately leaving the villagers to starve. The reason the Chinese communists were able to be so ruthless was the result of the way they regarded man. Just like Lenin and Stalin, Mao regarded human beings as a species of animal and attached no value to them. That was a natural consequence of the Darwinism he had imbibed in his youth. When he said, the basis of Chinese socialism rests on Darwin and his theory of evolution, Mao was actually clarifying the basis of the savagery he implemented. Mao's Darwinist philosophy has been described by the Harvard University historian James Reeves Pusey in these terms. The thought of Mao Zedong was and remains a powerful mixture of Darwinian ironies and contradictions. Mao Zedong, in an angry moment, as late as 1964, swore that all demons shall be annihilated. He dehumanized his enemies, partly in traditional hyperbole, partly in social Darwinian realism. Like the anarchists, he saw reactionaries as evolutionary throwbacks, who deserved extinction. The people's enemies were non-people, and they did not deserve to be treated as people. The Muslim Uyghur Turks of East Turkestan headed the list of those who suffered Mao's cruelty. With its long-term policy of genocide in East Turkestan, the communist regime ruthlessly slaughtered millions of innocent people. As a result of the nuclear tests deliberately carried out in the region, tens of thousands of children were left handicapped. This policy of genocide, that has been identified by international organizations, is still going on today in all its ruthlessness. Following the disaster of the Great Leap Forward, Mao withdrew from the scene and went into a kind of seclusion. The running of the country was left to more moderate civil servants. The Chinese were able in part to return to normal life, and but Mao was planning new murders. He thought that communist ideology had not spread sufficiently in society and attributed the failure of the Great Leap Forward to that deficiency.
Mao's supporters printed tens of millions of copies of his little red book, consisting of some of his speeches. Known as the Great Helmsman, Mao re-emerged onto the scene in the second half of the 1960s. A display of swimming he gave in the Yangtze River demonstrated both his energy and his support. Mao first of all set about debasing classic Chinese arts for the ideological program he dreamed of. He wished to graft the ideas of violence and conflict, the basis of communism, onto society and thought he could commence the process with opera. The traces of communist insanity could clearly be seen on the faces of the performers, who had been brainwashed by Maoist doctrines. A visit by Mao to the opera was the greatest honor imaginable for such fanatical supporters. Mao commenced his second leap in 1966. This was the great proletarian cultural revolution. Propaganda portraying Mao as a divine figure was put out all over China. School children were made to learn his little red book off by heart. His slogans were written on walls. And posters portrayed him as literally a superhuman being. The militants of the Cultural Revolution were young students known as Red Guards. On August 18, 1966, some one million Red Guards brainwashed with Mao's ideas came together in Tiananmen Square. They trampled each other in an effort to catch a glimpse of Mao's face. One young girl student was brought to Mao's side and shook his hand. Even if that was of little significance to Mao himself, it was a matter of the greatest significance to the girl and her friends, who all fell over themselves to touch the hand that had been shaken by Mao. Mao set these brainwashed youngsters on society with the slogan, Revolution is Right. He ordered the Red Guards to humiliate teachers in schools, managers in state offices, or anyone else they saw as being in authority. Red Guards even detained Lu Shakui, who bore the title of head of the state and inflicted all kinds of insults on him. Anyone involved in the management of any institution was accused of not being a communist, even if he had done nothing wrong, and would be hauled up in front of the crowds and humiliated. Such people would have humiliating paper hats put on their heads, and labels with insults written on them hung around their necks, would be slapped and pushed, and even beaten and tortured. Most were then killed in mass executions. The Red Guards were even capable of humiliating and beating their own parents. 
They would stop passers-by and ask them about passages from Mao's Little Red Book, beating those who failed to answer correctly. More than one million people were killed in this way. This is how one observer described the inhuman treatment meted out to university professors detained during the Cultural Revolution. Before a new four-story classroom building, I saw rows of teachers, about 40 or 50 in all, with black ink poured over their heads and faces. They all wore dunce caps and carried dirty brooms, shoes and dusters on their backs. Hanging from their necks were pails filled with rocks. Finally, they all knelt down, burned incense, and begged Mao Zedong to pardon their crimes. Beating and tortured followed. I had never seen such tortures before. Eating night soil and insects, being subjected to electric shocks, being forced to kneel on broken glass, being hanged like an aeroplane by the arms and legs. The Red Guards also attacked Western diplomats. The country was being drawn ever deeper into chaos and violence. Museums were ruined, books burned, after which fighting broke out between rival Red Guard factions. Factories, schools and hospitals all stopped functioning. Mao's nonsense had led a whole country to a state of anarchy. Order was only restored when the army intervened. The Red Guards were made harmless and sent off to labor in the fields. Even so, the madness of the Cultural Revolution only came to an end with Mao's death in 1976. The Communist Party's loyalty to him continued, however. In the funeral lament written for him, the bloody dictator was portrayed as a superior being. Mao's body was mummified and preserved. His ideology would survive, however, and continue to spill blood. Maoism is the very worst version of communism. The interesting thing is that this tragedy struck not only China, but also other countries influenced by China. When Sino-Soviet relations fell apart in the 1960s, Maoism found support in various countries as an alternative model of communism. Regimes based on Maoist principles were set up in Albania, North Korea, and Cambodia. And those regimes inflicted almost unimaginable suffering on people. The Cambodian killing fields in particular are a tale of a savagery unequaled in world history. Cambodia, a small and impoverished Asian nation, first began to feel the cold breath of communism in the 1960s. At that time, North Vietnamese units at war with the United States had begun to cross the border and infiltrate into Cambodia. In the 1970s, the country was drawn into civil conflict. Cambodian communist guerrillas known as the Khmer Rouge began a bloody war against the central government. The hatred in their hearts could be seen in their faces. The Khmer Rouge were led by a Maoist called Pol Pot, 
and came to power in 1975 when they entered the capital, Phnom Penh. The Khmer Rouge Revolution saw the dawn of appalling terror. Thousands of state employees were killed on the streets, and the streets were filled with patrolling tanks. The Khmer Rouge set out with Mao's slogan, The way of communism is peasantry, and forced the entire population out of the cities and into the villages. The capital, Phnom Penh, was emptied out within a few days under the threats of armed militants and hundreds of thousands of people were sent off to the rice fields to suffer and starve. Those fields turned into terrible killing fields, where people were worked to death for a handful of food or executed for no reason at all. The minority Muslim population in Cambodia was a target for the savagery. The Khmer Rouge administration rounded up copies of the Quran and burned them, tore down mosques and killed some 10,000 Muslims, women and children included. The communist regime not only attempted to destroy religion, but also the family. The communal form of living was established and all families were split up. Children in the communes were indoctrinated with the idea that families were unnecessary and were taught to love the Communist Party instead. These policies were nothing but Marx and Engels' comments on the origin of the family put into practice. Marx and Engels had suggested that man, whom they regarded as a species of animal evolved from apes, had no need of such concepts as religion, morality or the family. The killing fields of the Khmer Rouge were set up in order to translate that superstition of Marx and Engels into life. In the killing fields, the guards could kill anyone they had the slightest suspicion of. Khmer Rouge killings were that first carried out by means of a bullet in the head. Later, in order to avoid wasting bullets, they began putting plastic bags over people's heads and suffocating them. Three million out of the country's nine million population were killed in that way. Skulls and bones of those murdered by the Khmer Rouge are on display in a museum in Phnom Penh. One can see the deep fear in the faces of those whom the Khmer Rouge photographed before they killed. That is what communism and materialist philosophy have inflicted on mankind. All ideologies that reject God turn their backs on the morality he has taught and regard the world as one giant battleground all inflict disasters on mankind in the same manner. God reveals the secret of this truth in a verse of the Quran. 
Corruption has appeared in both land and sea because of what people's own hands have brought about so that they may taste something of what they have done so that hopefully they will turn back. Communism reached its peak in the 1960s. The Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc were run by the communist regime in Moscow. In China, Mao had been deified and his ideology was portrayed as an infallible guide. Fidel Castro's regime ruled in Cuba. The communist guerrilla leader Che Guevara was attempting to organize guerrilla wars in the Congo and Bolivia. Many other countries in Africa, Latin America and Asia were under the threat of communist terrorist organizations or communist regimes. During those years, communism also burst onto the scene in a totally unexpected place. Marxist ideology began to spread rapidly among young people in the West. The Marxist thinker Herbert Marcuse played an important role in that phenomenon. Marcuse offered a new definition of the revolutionary class, described as the workers by Lenin and as the peasants by Mao, the young. That same Marcuse actually agreed with Lenin and Mao on one fundamental matter. That was the Darwinist dogma that conflict was the fundamental law of nature. Marcuse's belief in conflict turned the 68 generation out onto the streets. Young British people held protest rallies at which they shouted slogans in support of North Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh. In Italy, leftist groups carried out acts of terrorism. The greatest explosion of violence in 1968 was in France. Firstly, Marxist students in Paris occupied their universities and socialist slogans were shouted during the celebrations. Events began to grow when other leftist groups organized marches in support of the students. Marxist students tore cars apart and smashed streets and shops. In a matter of a few days, Paris turned into a war zone. The barbarity that marched under the red flag was only suppressed months later. The 1968 student incident spread to many other countries under a kind of domino effect, and each time they led to social conflict, acts of terrorism, and even civil war. Those young people, exasperated by the political and economic problems of their day, believed that communism offered a solution. There was another important reason why the 68 generation got caught up in communist ideology. The education system that produced those young people gave them every detail of the basic philosophical training necessary for them to become communists. That was because Darwin's theory of evolution, which contains the basis of natural history for communism, as Karl Marx put it, was taught in schools 
As if it were a proven scientific fact, young people who believed in Darwin's ideas that man was an animal that progressed through conflict were not slow to turn to terror and anarchy. We may recall that Darwin's theory of evolution prepared the ground for the development of Chinese communism and that Mao's bloody regime arose from the ideological foundation of Darwinism. The entire picture reveals to us one very important fact. Communist ideology is the result of a worldview that regards man as a species of animal and believes that he progresses through conflict. If that worldview becomes prevalent in society, communism will inevitably ensue. When it finds an appropriate political and social climate, Communism reorganizes itself and again begins shedding blood. The fact that the communist regimes in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc were overthrown must not be allowed to put us off our guard. Communism is still a threat to the world because the ideology's basic philosophy is still alive and well. As long as that basis, in other words, Darwinism and materialism is still alive, communism will continue to represent a grave menace to mankind. That being the case, the solution lies in doing away with that philosophical foundation. Darwinism and materialist philosophy in any case possess no scientific basis and must no longer be imposed on society as if they were true. People must understand that they are not animals who merely exist to fight with one another, but that they are honorable creatures who must live by the lights of that morality created and revealed by God. Once that truth has been grasped, both communism and the other ideologies that have brought disaster to mankind will disappear, and man will live in peace, security, and brotherhood. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational i also have promotional t-shirts if you go to my website alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com you can see the promotional t-shirts there reach out to me also if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast just reach out and see if i can get that done i've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.